We live inside a dream. There is a war in this podcast. <laughs> Not a war that has been fought or one that will be, but any war. And the enemies who struggle here do not exist unless we call them into being. This podcast then and all that happens now is outside history. Only the fascinating movie trivia and the pristine audio quality and the freaking <laughs> epic goofs are from our world. These podcasters that you see keep our language and our time but have no other podcast but The Mind. Oh, my God. Ladies and blokes, welcome to the very first episode of Stan and Dave Need Wedding Dates. My name is Eric Keppel. My name is Jeremy Schmidt. I got to say, Eric, that was such a great preamble to kick off this entire series. <laughs> it was this like fucked up Rod, like a poor a poor man's Rod Serling impression. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Which is crazy because I think this comes out technically like a, over a decade before the twilight zone airs correct yeah yeah this is uh definitely the oldest movie we have talked about and maybe will ever talk about <laughs> I don't know. it might be the <laughs> oldest movie i'll ever watch again <laughs> right right i will say it was fun to see like a student level film from 1953 i don't yes. think i've ever uh ever seen something like this before but hello and welcome uh jeremy I got to imagine we might have some new listeners, I hope. Um, and I hope that our, our previous listeners are, are joining us along for the ride. Yes, but, Brian, uh, Dad Wears Glasses, welcome back. Courtney, if Courtney, you're out there. If you're hopefully you're still there. Matt J. I don't know if he listens. Matt J. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of great listeners out there. And uh, just to recap, in case you uh, have never listened to an episode of our podcast before, uh, we started as a Chucky podcast. <laughs> Uh, and we have since kind of been covering different uh, horror films. We covered the Final Destination films, and we've kind of been uh, having fun talking about all these sort of like campy, fun horror films for the last uh, five or six months, and now we have decided to uh, to talk about some films that are a little bit less uh, complex, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit less artistic. Right. Uh, so we decided, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, so basically we put out a poll. We were like, we want to cover either David Lynch's work or Stanley Kubrick's. We put out a poll on Twitter, 50-50 split. So this freak of a podcast is all <laughs> on you guys, all right? And we're I will say a, we, uh, we made them choose between these two. If our, I feel like if our fans, if our listeners had it their way, we'd be doing like the fucking Ernest movies or something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, Kevin Smith or something. Yeah. Uh, which I'm not. A, uh, I'm not opposed to that. We're not but, above that at all. I just. I think we just definitely wanted to cover these these guys because we've been talking about doing did. it since our, the podcast start. You know, I think I think we've been talking about wanting to talk about Twin Peaks since we started doing podcasts. <laughs> yes, exactly. And part of that is we uh, like over the past uh, number of months we have like 
kind of developed this uh, fun little uh, back and forth with some of our listeners where like they're recommending stuff for us to cover and for us to check out. Uh, and I think that this is kind of like, I know, I know that there are a few listeners out there who are going to be like experiencing David Lynch and maybe even some Kubrick for, uh, the first time. And, uh, we both fucking love these. I mean, it's no secret that these guys are like legends, uh, not just in film, but in like art in general and culture. Yeah. Like Um, I feel like their faces are even recognizable. You know what I mean? Like you might've seen them on like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. I sure. uh, yeah we're 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 huge we're huge into them and I did I did tell somebody today in person what we were doing covering both David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick movies and this person was like well you got to do AI <laughs> so uh, just so <laughs> I, you know we will be cards. doing AI we will be covering AI we'll be covering AI I'm sure there will be other stuff I mean this is going to take us months like yes. especially if and when well when we do Twin Peaks I think it's in the plans to do Twin Peaks, but um, we'll uh, we'll cover some shit. I know David Lynch has some like really weird like short films and stuff that like oh, even I have never God, seen. We got to do those shorts. I forgot about that. Yeah, like the rabbits or whatever. And he used to he used to like post uh, like he would do his own weather updates every day online. <laughs> I don't know if those are still on YouTube and if those count. <laughs> It's like yeah. films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those would be which brings us to uh which brings me to the one other point I wanted to bring up. We have a Patreon. Uh we do about one free episode a week, three to four uh uh episodes a month, uh bonus episodes, most of which we cover Tales from the Crypt, which we kind of just started uh going through all of those, uh, which has been super fun. Uh but we also do have uh, one or two of those episodes a month is uh, something unrelated to Tales from the Crypt. Uh, so in the past, uh, we, we our most recent one, we talked about uh, hot topic films, like films that have kind of uh, the, the merchandise has become available in like a hot topic and a target. And yes. we kind of talked Very about- Very fun episode uh, to do. Very yes. fun. Yes. Uh, we talked a lot about- uh, nightmare before christmas (laughs) (laughs) a lot about i remember vividly talking about the simpsons sopranos (laughs) t-shirt yeah (laughs) yeah and how neither of us would ever uh wear that (laughs) that shirt um yeah so that is uh and that's five bucks a month you can go to patreon.com slash eric and jeremy um and yeah i'm gonna be uh, uh uh jeremy i'm back to not really having a life so i'll be doing as i did for this episode i did a little bit of research um and of course your wacky bits i'm sure you just heard a, a grooving new theme song that i put together and uh god damn it jeremy i'm excited <laughs> yeah i can't wait to hear the song myself i have not heard it oh you know what i forgot to do um uh i forgot to do fuck i was gonna do an intro uh it doesn't really it doesn't really work that well anyway it was i was gonna do it and then like but like do it as it's like i know that it's bad but i'm gonna say it anyway uh welcome to stan and dave need wedding dates with your two two favorite wimps who like kubrick and lynch oh Uh, i love i was trying to figure out a rhyme uh i couldn't yeah, you, you can't mm-hmm. find anything that rhymes with Lynch or Kubrick. Yeah, uh, anywhere. Yeah, that's it's impossible. It's literally orange. The word orange. Nothing rhymes with <laughs> yeah. it. Nothing rhymes with Lynch or Kubrick. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's tough. So... Anyway, uh, Jer- so the idea behind this podcast, by the way, is we're going to go back and forth. Uh, one episode is going to be a Kubrick. The next episode is going to be a Lynch. Back and forth, and we're going to go kind of chronologically. So today we are talking about Kubrick's, uh, uh, and I can now see why his uh, the film that he tried to bury from existence, uh, Fear <laughs> and Desire. old Fear and Desire. Uh, before we get into this, though, Eric, I would like to start off, because this is our first Kubrick episode, and I'm yeah. guessing next week's going to be our first Lynch episode. So before Ooh. we get started with either one, I do want to ask you, uh, Eric, just in general, and I know we probably covered this on our Shining episode, which we did just a, a few little, weeks yeah. ago. I want to know, like, what is your, your personal experience in history with Stanley Kubrick? So my personal experience, uh, it's actually like a little bit similar to my history with David Lynch, where I have like... Earlier, after over time, I had become much more of a David Lynch completist and just obsessive uh, weirdo. Uh, that hasn't happened to me yet with Kubrick, but with both directors, I like in my teens discovered one or two movies that I just kept rewatching, and I just like admired their work from those few movies. So for Kubrick, it was um fucking uh uh clockwork orange mm-hmm. uh and then the Sh- and the shining and like those movies i would watch uh, the shining definitely more so i would just watch over and over um the i always appreciated him as a filmmaker and eyes wide shut by the way i've i've it's grown on me more and more as well in light of the uh Jeffrey Epstein stuff and how broken my my brain is, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, very excited yeah. to talk about that film in five months or whatever. Uh, but uh, the one other, the one experience that I did have where it, I kind of crossed the line of like, okay, Kubrick's a fucking genius, and I I need to devote more time to learning about him and watching his work. Is I, the first time I saw 2001 was. Uh, embarrassingly only a few years ago and I saw it on film at the Cinerama Dome which is like one of the best movie experiences of my life um, but yeah what what about you Jeremy um, I, I discovered Kubrick late in high school it was one of those like when I started getting into film and like really like investing in all right who are these people that make films and and which ends up like becoming like what I end up like pursuing in my life as like a career and more than just a hobby I started getting into Kubrick around that time and just realizing just like the scope of what Kubrick sort of left behind I guess in cinema and I think it was there like I kind of like fell in love with him and then through college was really like when like that DVD box set came out I don't know if anyone remembers this Stanley Kubrick DVD box set but it's like this beautiful like it has like most of his films in it, I think, at least the ones that were owned by uh, Warner at the time, I believe it was Warner Brothers, and uh, and yeah, there's that documentary called A Life in Pictures, and I used to watch, rewatch A Life in Pictures, like like every couple of days uh, after coming home from the bar, very drunk in college, because uh, I just I wanted to be Kubrick, you know, like it it became more than just wanting like enjoying th- their work. I, I really wanted to like be a, a creator like Stanley Kubrick. Uh, to me, he he was like an unflinching artistic force of nature. And I think it's funny, like a lot of people respond to Kubrick in this way. And uh, I think like in hindsight, I and I've I mentioned this before and I'll mention it again, like I, I'm not super cool with Kubrick, uh, you know, to, uh, hindsight's tw- sort of 2020. And as I get older, like, a lot of what he did as a director, like 
I think is really cool. And a lot of what he did, I think, is actually really like tasteless and terrible. Like he treated people pretty badly. <laughs> and I guess for me, that is like, uh, you know, part of growing up and also part of like uh, falling in love with collaboration over, you know, my voice reigns supreme and everything I and, and like my vision is the only vision. And uh, so I, I'm really excited to go back through all of these films and sort of re-examine them, I guess, as a 30-year-old. Because as a 20-year-old, he was like God to me. And as a 30-year-old now, I feel like I'm, I'm like, who is this man and, and, and what, was, what is he capable of? And I'm really, I'm really excited to look at that. And uh, I think this first film is going to be a fucking wild roller coaster to talk yeah, about. So I'm, yeah. I'm super excited. <laughs> So it's funny that you bring up the, or it's interesting that you bring up kind of like how he treated uh, his actors. Like Shelley Duvall on on The Shining is like the classic uh, example where uh, we know that like he put her through hell during that, um, during that performance. And uh, it's, it's, this is like one of a lot, many, many things that we're going to be able to uh, kind of like compare and contrast to uh, in terms of like, uh, Kubrick v. Lynch because David Lynch like every interview from anyone who's ever worked with him will tell you he's just like a sweetheart yes um, and they and love him like and, the, uh, yes and he's like super nice and, and soft spoken like I, I specifically remember an interview with Dennis Hopper from Blue Velvet where the, he's talking about Kubrick uh, sorry uh, Lynch like talking to him about this scene where Frank uh, Dennis Hopper's character has to say the F word a lot and he and yeah. he kept he kept directing Dennis Hopper by saying like you know when you say that word and it's like and he's like what fuck <laughs> like you talking about that and, and like lynch wouldn't say the f word like he was too <laughs> polite to say it even though he had written yeah. it like a hundred times in his script he was a really uh, a quirky guy i'm excited uh uh, uh i just watched uh, last night i watched a, a little there's a little documentary on youtube if you want to get ready for the Eraserhead episode there's a youtube documentary with like interviews from the from the cast that's really good oh, that's uh, awesome. and he would wear like early on when he was like a film school guy he was like really fucking weird he would wear like three different neckties <laughs> at the same time but uh yeah so so jeremy i would say and i mean we're both uh you you definitely know uh way more than i do about kubrick um you also i know a lot about david lynch um i am like a david lynch obsessive uh, so it'll be like an interesting contrast as well, just to kind of like go go back and forth. And yeah, and I definitely don't know as much about David Lynch as you do, for sure. And I don't know as much about David Lynch as I do Stanley Kubrick. So I think I think that will right. be that'll be an interesting. It'll be interesting to like kind of ha- share insight as we go, as you being an expert of one, me being an expert of the other, and um, I feel like uh, in conjunction with all this stuff, it would be nice, and maybe we'll talk more about this, like off air but like i would love to i would love to do an episode just devoted to both of their like almost like their biographies you know what i mean like sure an episode to one an episode to the other one and maybe we'll do that at like that maybe the halfway point or something like to give to give our listeners and refresh ourselves on like the context behind these two these two guys because i will say like though it was random we chose these two for our like little online poll to see like which ones our listeners wanted us to uh, cover. What these two have in common is that they are both like 
they are both unflinching auteurs. Like they are both uh, directors whose complete vision has to be seen through. And anytime in these, in either of these directors' uh, careers, anytime their vision is not completely followed, we see some really bizarre, interesting, borderline actual bad content. Like right. I, I think specifically like Kubrick in, on Spartacus, like where he, when he couldn't have his word, like uh, uh things went so crazy. And I think also about like Lynch doing Dune where it was oh, like yeah. such a fucking shit show. But it was like, it was like both of those directors having to learn from the, st- from doing studio system projects where they didn't have final cut. And yeah. I think like, I think that becomes like a, a serious issue for these guys. And it's, and it's so fun to talk about because these are issues we do not hear about uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Like what, like it's just not, it's just not um, a super popular topic of like, like uh, a director not getting their way. I mean, I think the last one I can even think of is like Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man because Mm. fucking Marvel or Disney like wouldn't let him do what they wanted him to do. Um, But yeah, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it's just not, it doesn't happen that, that much anymore. You know, like uh, uh, this idea of like a director or an auteur just like, you know, needing their final cut, needing like uh, having an unflinching direction and what, they wanted their film to be and like having an all out war with the studio. It, it's going to be interesting to talk about that kind of stuff too. You know, Jeremy, this might not be the best time to bring this up, but uh, after this episode, you're going to need to find another co-host. <laughs> um, I mean, you're not giving me the creative control that I, that I signed up for. I'm sorry, but I just feel like we have to replace our lead with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that that biography episode uh, ideas is really good. I do have like just a, just a very brief, uh, some bullet points just to, for the Stanley Kubrick novice, just to kind of like bring him up to speed on like who he is and where we're, where he's at in his career when, when this film came out. So, uh, Stanley Kubrick, American film director. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very cool. Uh, barely though. I would say barely a, an American film director. True. Um, yeah. Yeah. At some point he, well, you go on. <laughs> Uh, raised in the Bronx, worked as a photographer for Look Magazine in the early 40s and 50s, began making short films on a shoestring budget, demanding perfectionist, uh, which is not evidenced in this first film, which we'll talk about. Uh, he is known uh, to ask for dozens of reshoots. We'll get into all that stuff later, actually. I just realized that this is all stuff that we'll probably discuss. What I really wanted to point out is the fact that he did start out like as a photographer, uh, as, yeah. and for... Look Magazine, from what I hear, uh, and I know nothing about photography or the 40s or 50s, uh, but from what I understand, it was around 70 years ago. Uh, Look Magazine was was like the, it was like a very cool, it's like cool that he was a photographer for Look Magazine, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he was also incredibly... Like he was, he was incredible at it. Like there's a yeah. very famous um, photograph he took of an old man in a newspaper stand after FDR died, and that like uh, apparently like when people would see this photograph they would just weep. Like he was just he was just on another level when it came to taking photographs, and you can see those a lot of those photographs if you watch a Life in Pictures that documentary about Kubrick. It's towards the beginning, mm-hmm. and um, from there I guess he would like make a couple documentaries before making Fear and Desire. 
which is the yep. film we're covering today. Did you mention the uh, what is it? Night of the Fight. That's one of them, right? No, but that's the the boxing one, right? The yeah, boxer. Mm-hmm. it was yeah. just a documentary about a boxer. Uh, yes. And then the other one, I can't re- really remember what the subject of that was, but um, yeah. So uh, that's kind of like what he's uh, kind of how he started his his professional career. Uh, so 1953, because uh, this is a very long time ago, just to set the uh, <laughs> cultural context, the Korean War ends, uh, which this film has. Uh, 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 was heavily influenced by by the Korean War. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower inaugurated uh, as the president of the U.S. Soviet Union tests uh, its version of the hydrogen bomb. First polio vaccine was developed. Cambodia becomes independent from France. The first color television set goes on sale for. How much do you think, Jeremy? How much? Do you, how many dollars U.S. do you think? Oh a, shit! The first color five hundred dollars. Uh oh, $1175. Wow. Uh, For 1953, York, that's that's like a house. <laughs> yeah. New York adopts three color traffic lights. I got to imagine the two that they had before were green and red. No, That'd no, no. Weird. I think it was yellow and green. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was only ever go and slow down. <laughs> This is wild, actually. 1953, cigarette smoking is finally reported as causing lung cancer. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's crazy. Uh, we all know this, but just a refresher: in 1953, uh, the average price of a chainsaw was 225 dollars, <laughs> and uh, Tim Allen was born on June 13th, 1953. Uh, 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 uh. uh popular TV <laughs> was uh, I Love Lucy, the Jack Benny program, Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, the Colgate Comedy Hour. No idea what that is, but uh, I gotta Colgate imagine toothpaste? it <laughs> has to be like a toothpaste-sponsored comedy show. Which, yeah. to be honest with you, like isn't too far off from <laughs> what we're getting these days. Right. Uh, popular films: uh, Peter Pan, mm. House of Wax. Yeah. Not talking about the fucking was that Carmen Electra or who? Paris Hilton. Was, Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton. Yeah. yeah. And Chad Michael uh, Murray. <laughs> yes. Uh, Julius Caesar from here to eternity. Uh, yeah, 1953. The, 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 the big heat, War of the Worlds, uh, uh, Shane uh, yes. came out that year. Uh, uh, yeah, this was like a very fertile time for, for the Hollywood film system specifically. Like this is when Hollywood was still making hit after hit, just dominating the box office and, um, wouldn't, wouldn't cease this like sort of murderer's row of like amazing well i mean pseudo amazing stuff until the 60s the 60s is when hollywood takes a flying shit and then can't yes can't recover which is which bring which ushers in the amazing american 70s cinema with our boys martin the irishman scorsese and (laughs) francis the godfather ford coppola (laughs) And David Eraserhead Lynch. Lynch. Hell yeah, dude. 77, baby. Uh, so we're going to talk uh, uh, just a, a little overview about like the production of the film. I do want to mention this because it's on the top of my mind. Uh, I just read this mere hours ago, actually. The uh, Who I would say is the only good actor in this film, uh, Virginia Leith, who plays... I think she's the one who plays the woman who is like captured. Okay. Uh, she died uh, a few days ago. 
Oh my God, no way. Yeah, she's 94, yeah. Wow, she lived a very long, full life. Yes. Uh, would so, you not consider Paul Mazursky to be a, a good a good actor? Which guy was he? He is the the maniac. <laughs> he is, uh, what's his oh, name? Um, oh gosh, yeah. I, I can already not remember this guy's name. His name yeah. is uh, fucking not Corby. Sydney. Sydney is yes. the character's name. Uh, but Paul Mazursky has an incredible career that comes after this. He's an American film director, screenwriter, and actor. Uh, he's also not been nominated for five Academy Awards, three times for Best Original Screenplay, once for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, and once for Best Picture for An Unarmed Woman in 1978. His other mm. films include Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is a very famous film, Bloom and Love, Harry and Tonto, Moscow on the Hudson, and Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Uh, hmm. yeah, he's, he's a very celebrated, like, filmmaker and fucking whatever. Doesn't matter, but thought, uh, yeah, thought he was notable and thought it was interesting that it was, like, he's, like, in this film as an actor, because he, I think he's more known as being a director. Yeah. Huh. I didn't really know about that. Um. Yeah, but R.I.P. It, to Virginia. Rip. Um. Yeah. 53, uh, American anti-war film. Uh, Kubrick uh, directed, produced, and edited the whole thing. Uh, written by Howard Sackler, who is a screenwriter and playwright. Uh, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was best known for a drama called The Great White Hope, which he won a Pulitzer Prize for. Uh, classmate of Kubrick's at uh, William Howard Taft High School in the Bronx. Uh, production team of 15 people, which... Uh, I think we had more people on that uh, working on my short film. Oh, uh, for sure we did. We did. Or at, yeah, I know for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had more people hanging around. Kubrick had directed two short documentaries. We already talked about that. Kubrick felt he was ready to make a narrative feature. He quit his full-time job with Look to make Fear and Desire, which is crazy. Like this film, I believe, took like around a year for him to make. So mm-hmm. imagine just quitting your full-time job to make <laughs> a movie. Uh, also, this movie um, <laughs> yeah. is pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funds for the film were raised from Kubrick's family and friends, most of it coming from uh, Martin Perviller, uh, Kubrick's uncle and the owner of a profitable pharmacy, uh, filmed in California's San Gabriel Mountains. Uh, yeah, it should, be, went- it should be noted, too, that Kubrick comes from money. Like, that is a weird yeah. thing about Kubrick that... Uh, you know, not a lot of people love about their artists. Like, you know, right. we don't we don't always like love it when an artist comes from a really wealthy background. But Kubrick has a lot of privilege, and this having funded this film through family members is a very privileged thing that you actually see a lot today. You see a lot that happen, you know, and that helps people get a leg up in their careers is when they're not only talented but also fucking. Like also very loaded, uh, CUCB. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and they're able to just like right, like produce, uh, get the funding like through family to do that. Like the Duplass brothers are like a good example of that, where their I believe their dad like gave them money to make to start their the like, the puffy couch, chair, the puffy chair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, whatever. It's it's kind of like lame that that's how the world works but also like i don't know kubrick's really good so yeah uh, who knows like what would have happened i i gotta imagine he would have uh 
kind of gone along succeeded anyway yeah yeah he was already on his way to becoming like a pretty prolific uh photographer yeah I will say that one thing we don't necessarily attribute to people who are exceedingly wealthy necessarily or come, I'm sorry, people who come from wealth starting out, one thing we don't necessarily attribute is having an incredible work ethic, which is something that Kubrick definitely had. Yeah. So that's worth noting too. Yes. Uh, David Lynch, by the way, I think his, uh, I think he comes from a pretty modest background in Montana. Oh, that that um, tracks to me for some reason. Like Kubrick being from was, New York and 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 Lynch being from Montana totally tracks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, due to uh, budget limitations, Kubrick improvised in the use of his equipment to create fog. Kubrick used a crop sprayer, but oh, the casting God. crew was nearly <laughs> asphyxiated uh, because the machinery still contained the insecticide used for its uh. agricultural uh, work. So like DDT or something. Yes. Uh, so for tracking shots, Paul Mazursky recalled how Kubrick came up with a novel substitute. Uh, there was no dolly track, he said, just a baby carriage to move the camera. Great. Um, the film's initial uh, intended budget was around ten thousand uh, dollars. Ended up being around $53,000. So to reduce production costs, Kubrick had intended uh, to make it a silent picture, but in the end. Uh, the adding of uh, sounds, effects, uh, very bad uh, ADR and music <laughs> brought the production budget over to around uh, 53000 <laughs> Was very bad ADR your editorializing? Yeah, that's my editorializing. <laughs> uh, and it had to be ba- bailed out by producer Richard D. Rashomon uh, on condition that he help in uh, his production of a five-part program about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, in right. the years following its release, Fear and Desire uh, seemed to have disappeared. Legend has it Kubrick had it destroyed, uh, the film's original negative, and uh, sought to do the same with any leftover prints after the failed film fell out of circulation following distribution. Uh, or following uh, the distributor uh, Burstein's death, however, some prints from the film remained in private collections. So... One of them ended up on YouTube. I know in 2010 there was an original copy that was found in like a Puerto Rican film laboratory, which is kind of like an interesting thing that that like <laughs> that this he like tried so hard to just like make this entire movie not exist, and it just turns up in a fucking Puerto right. Rican film laboratory decades later. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things about this film that's like really strange and just like has leaves a really strange like uh, uh poison mist in the air uh another th- uh, one of those things is that toba kubrick who's kubrick's first wife that you never hear about you never hear about this person uh and there's virtually no information on the internet about her worked as the dialogue director on this movie hmm. and you know, talk about burying information, Kubrick burying information. Like, why is there absolutely no fucking uh, information about Toba? Like, who is this yeah. person and where did she come from and where do they meet and stuff? Like, it's not in A Life in Pictures. Like, they spend almost a half an hour talking about his romance and then eventually marrying his his second wife, who would end up being his final wife that he had all of his kids with, you know? But... Mm. um who he also met like on set, I think for paths of glory, but, uh, but Toba, like I, you, you don't know anything about her. And I'm 
so fucking fascinated <laughs> and like who is this person uh did they get divorced i mean she didn't pass away because she's still alive i believe but um yeah it's interesting huh i didn't know about toma yeah um before we dive into the plot jeremy how do you feel about posthumous uh releases especially something like this knowing that like kubrick uh did not want anyone to see this I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Like, if if it happened to me post-death, I don't care. And I don't care when it happens to other people post-death. I kind of think I've, when you're dead, yeah. you have no more say. You don't get a say anymore. Like, sorry. You don't get to hold things over people when you're dead. Maybe I'm maybe I'm out of line here. Maybe I'm kind of crazy. Uh, I, but having, you know, just experienced a lot of tragedy and trauma myself and, like, had to go to a bunch of funerals, like... Nothing ever shakes out the way you really want it to when you're dead. Yeah. Like, sorry, but that's just like reality. And Kubrick being such a control freak, I almost like that this is released against his will yeah. because it kind of throws into the face like this idea of control. And that like in life, you never really have control. Like you never really have final say. Like you think you do, mm-hmm. but and you can and you can try to make that happen, but it, it inevitably won't. And we need to know about fear and desire. <laughs> like we need to watch this because this is like. Right. This is where our boy started. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel, I, I mean, I feel like if you're someone who like it, anyone gives enough of a shit about to like release your stuff after you die, uh, whatever. I, I don't know. It's it's like <laughs> yeah. fine. I don't know. It's like there is like a weird like, more, I guess it's maybe like a case by case thing, but like, I don't know, like fucking New Moon, the Elliot Smith like right. recordings. That's my favorite Elliot Smith uh, record. Hell it's yeah. Like, it's like fucking awesome. Yeah, it's, and it's great. All, it's just a completely like after his death, like un, like tracks that he like might not have even wanted people to hear, but it's like fucking amazing. So I don't know. Um, it is just kind of like an interesting, uh, weird thing that, that comes up every once in a while. Yeah. Um, so... We're gonna go through the uh, the plot here. Uh, before we cause... before we go through the plot, I, I want to mention that in the YouTube video um, that you that the the good transfer that you can find, yeah. it includes a brief interview, like a five yes. and a half minute interview with Stanley Kubrick before the film starts. And I feel like it's a very whoever put that together did a really good job because that is a yes. very good preamble to what you're about to watch. I feel like that's way better than watching the film out of context. So I would encourage you, if you're going to watch the film on YouTube, watch that interview first and revel in all the beautiful insults and crazy things Kubrick <laughs> says in that interview because it's really wild. It's it's yeah. really fun. He really like goes all... He says like every act, the acting is like all bad. Like he really like... Yeah. Uh, doesn't uh, go easy on, on he throws on part everyone under the bus incl- and yeah. most of all he includes the writer he just says yes. he just like uh, fucking insults the writer up and down he also like admits that he had no idea what he was doing which mm-hmm. is I think a rare thing for Kubrick but like you can just hear in his tone of voice like how um, arrogant Kubrick is <laughs> like he's yeah. so arrogant and just thinks very highly of himself in art. But I love that he calls the film pretentious because that is like one yes. of the funniest things going into this film is like knowing that he thinks that it like really flavor, it puts a good flavor in your mouth for what you're about to watch for because sure. this film is 
the most gaudy, pretentious. When you said student film, that's so apt because it feels like a really bad student film. <laughs> like the, yeah. one of your college buddies would make. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're going to go through the plot here. Uh, normally, uh, this is a... B- b- by the way, if you like haven't watched this movie yet... Um, you can watch it. I posted a link to it on our Twitter, and we've been talking about the YouTube, the aforementioned YouTube video is is linked on our Twitter. Um, so you can watch this movie uh, before uh, before. Otherwise, you can just listen to us go through the plot, do whatever you want to do. Um, now, this will be because this is only like an hour long movie, and it's very old, and there aren't like as in depth uh, synopses out there. Um, this might be a little shorter than our than our. This is definitely going to be shorter than our like Barry Lyndon episode, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll go through uh, go through the plot here, and Jeremy, feel free to stop me uh, whenever. Uh, Fear and Desire opens with an off-screen narration by David Allen, uh, who tells the the audience there is a war in this forest. Uh, I don't need to do the whole thing again, but <laughs> I this is actually my favorite shot of the whole thing. Is like just kind of like overlooking what I guess is the San Gabriel uh, Valley. It just looks really cool in black and white. Um, yeah. I kind of like I I it, you know I was like going into this and this dissipated like very quickly, but there was like a feeling of excitement where I was like, "Fuck yeah!" I'm I'm like I'm forcing myself to watch like a '50s like war film. Right. Which is something I never do. And I'm kind of like ready for it. Yeah. And I, and I also want to say that like, it, I want to caveat every criticism that I have for the, of this film with also it looks beautiful. Cause like, yes, that is something about the film that is unmistakable is that Stanley Kubrick is a photographer and every shot is composed like a photograph. So it's all beautiful, a lot of depth. He stages a lot of great black and white lit depth uh, to a lot of his shots. And I will say that right when you hear the soldiers start to talk, yes, it is terrible ADR, but I loved the choice to have them incredibly subdued. Like their voices are very calming at first. They're very like weird. It's very dreamlike, but it is. It, it isn't supernatural, but it also does not sound like any other film that came out in the 50s. Like, no other film in the 50s is this subtle. Like, the way that they, the soldiers, like, talk to each other is quiet and very real and, like, <laughs> and, like the yes. things they say are very strange to one another. And it gives it immediately, like, a vibe that is I don't know. I guess just pretty interesting. So I do I do agree with that Eric that it's like it's like starting this out you kind of are like it's kind of like the, that's the best it's going to get. It's like right at the beginning like when you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um so the story is set during a war between two unidentified countries. Uh, an airplane carrying four soldiers from one country has crashed 6 miles behind enemy lines. Um the soldiers come upon a river and build a raft. Uh, I gotta. So, would this work? <laughs> would this raft work? These are like uh, huge logs that they're just like tying together. 
Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, for the purposes of this like weird premise, I went with it, but I was also like, yeah. I didn't understand like why not walk alongside the river? I wasn't. I was just very right. unsure. Like what? How wide is the river? Like, is it? You know what I mean? Like, I, I wasn't really sure of the details of this, but I don't know if it would work. It does actually work in the film. Like we do see this raft. It cannot hold four people for sure, but it is a raft. <laughs> yes. Um, so they're hoping to uh, to use the waterway to reach their battalion. Uh, as they're building their raft, uh, they are approached by... Actually, you know what? Before this, don't they go to... Uh, before they meet the peasant girl, yeah. uh, they... They go to like a shack or something, and yeah. they like take over this like shack. There's like a really weird uh, POV stabbing shot, which yeah, it actually looks cool, but it's like the the action of it is so uh, 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 not believable, like in right. any way. Yeah, it's um, again. This film is like full of ideas, like fo- like photographic ideas, like ideas and like how to like. It definitely feels like a first film for somebody where it's like flexing a lot of weird creativeness where you don't usually see it. Um, right. But but this, yeah, they take over the shack and and uh, regretfully they find stew, like a stew to eat. And one of the soldiers yeah. eats stew in the most disgusting way I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> I don't remember. How does he eat it? He just like... Instead of just like eating it like a normal person, he he must be so hungry. He's just pouring it all down his mouth, <laughs> and it's just like so nasty. <laughs> yeah, you know it is crazy because uh, I would say uh, I think most people would agree that Kubrick is more of a perfectionist than David Lynch. Although I, they both have their perfectionism qualities, but uh, it is interesting how. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Eraserhead so we can kind of compare the, that to this because mm-hmm. Eraserhead in my mind is like almost a perfect movie for what it is. And Lynch spent like literally six years making it, uh, to get it to a point where he, he was happy with it. Uh, and it's, it's pretty wild that like the guy who made The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, like at one point in his life made uh made this movie and i kind of love it cuz i kind of uh, there's something about it where uh uh, uh it, it like humanizes kubrick a lot to me and it almost like makes me feel uh more comfortable uh being you know an artist myself it's like holy shit like this is a Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I will say that like the initial premise when you, when he like spells it out in the narration, which I did not care for really. Like I, I like some of the flowery language in the narration, but like just mm. spelling out exactly what this is. Like I, I do, I do think the premise is interesting. Like I do like it. It feels, I mean, honestly, it feels like a twilight zone episode. Like this feels very much like something that they would have done on that show. But yes. I think that like Kubrick in that interview is correct in that it is like it is like no drama in it. It's like mm. it's like incredibly boring and the metaphors are terrible. Like <laughs> Right. Yeah. One of so, my yeah, one of my big problems, and this might go into like the drama part, is there is no like 
character development really like i towards the end of this movie like when all of the action is finally happening i'm like i don't give a fuck about like any of these (laughs) any of these guys so like (laughs) there's no stakes for me um but you know uh so as they are building their raft uh they're approached by a young peasant girl actually we see several uh Mm -hmm. several uh uh 50s babes Yes. Uh, hanging out in the water doing laundry or something. What, what are they doing? They're like doing something. Yeah, I think they're doing laundry. And I think it's weird that uh, this, it it's said kind of in this Wikipedia article, but also like in general, I've heard like some of the synopsises of this film where they're like, she approaches them. It's like, no, like they totally ambush her. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. find her in the woods and then they pop out of the bushes and grab her. <laughs> it's like <laughs> not at all. Like she stumbled upon them, you know? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, and she does not speak their language. No. Uh, I don't know if she speaks. I can't remember if she speaks at all. There's a cool, uh, that is a cool like moment. Uh, visually when she's like looking into the bushes oh, and yeah, we see the POV good. from the bushes. That's really good. Yeah, where you um, can barely see the other guy's eyes looking at her from the bushes and she doesn't yeah. notice him, but you do. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yes. Um, so the soldiers apprehend the girl and bind her to a tree with their belts. Uh, I think it's the, uh, what's his name? The 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 general who says, uh, no one's going to punish her. I simply want to tie her up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was like a wild thing to say. Yeah, uh, these four yeah. soldiers are bad men too. Like they They're are shitty. bad. Yes. Yeah, they they make a lot of jokes about possibly taking advantage of her. They mm-hmm. also make a lot of jokes about like, oh boy, I wish she had three other friends for us to fuck. You know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a weird line. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh yeah, so the youngest of them, Sydney, played by our boy uh Paul M. Yeah. Um is left behind to guard the girl. Ugh. Yeah, don't leave Sydney with the girl. I mean, come no. on, you guys. Uh he starts to talk to her, but as she doesn't understand him, he descends into a state of delirium. So this uh is where things get weird, but I do want to mention uh this guy. Uh, this guy got no game, Jeremy. No I mean, way. He ain't got the no guy game. got no game. Yeah. Uh, uh, he is like uh, zero to 60 in the delirium department. Like it does dude. not take him very long to have a full on mental breakdown and start like dry humping her up against the tree. Right. But even when he's like just trying to like make her laugh or whatever, like, mm-hmm. like charm her in the beginning, his like, what he thinks will like <laughs> make this girl who he has tied up like right. like him is like he does this very cartoonish uh, impression of the general, uh, <laughs> like very very weird. It's it's like the one of the weirdest uh, things you could possibly uh, do in front of a woman. Uh, it's, right. it's just like very bizarre. Uh, and yeah. yeah, it's it's I so <laughs> this guy goes mad. I don't understand like how how or why like what what triggered it necessarily is yeah. it just because like this uh this woman that they like captured like isn't uh charmed by him is that I don't know it's weird because it's like it's almost like he's already been cap struggling mentally and then yeah. when he's left alone 
he unravels and like the line I texted you earlier today was uh, he's, he's up against her kind of kissing her cheek while she can't do anything about it tied to a tree. And he says the line, if you have to hate me, please try to like me also. It's like fucking batshit weird, weird dialogue that he's saying to her. And I think this is the meat of fear and desire. I think like, this is like the movie is, is basically kind of this moment and the fallout of this moment. I feel like this is like what the main premise is. Would you agree with that? Yeah. 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 I would think so too. It kind of like goes into the, like the war is in their minds or whatever. Kind of, kind of right. Um, Yeah. Or the, the, the country in their minds, or whatever the fuck it is. I just, like, wish that there was more of a, like, uh, incident where we're like, okay, this is him becoming crazy. This is, like, why he became crazy. I just wish it was, like, more clear, I guess. Because I am, like, kind of on board with it. Um, I think it's fine. But, uh, so he unbelts her, uh, Believing she will uh, embrace him, she uh, tries to escape, and Sydney shoots her dead. Um, it's so terrible because yeah. she's just been tortured by this guy, and then as soon as she gets away, and he responds. I, I I really do like his performance, but he responds in this way of like, "Don't tell the general." Like he says this like weird like line before he shoots her, like very quiet, like obviously not yelling to her, but he's like, "Don't tell the general," and then he shoots her. It's like super, oh, it's like very disturbing. And then he falls down on the ground. <laughs> yes. Um, so Mac, uh, wait, hold on. Yes, Mac, another one of the four soldiers, finds the dead girl and watches as Sydney runs off towards the uh, river. He says something weird that's like, he says the magician did it or something weird like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because like, he was telling her a yeah. story, I think, about a magician. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought that was kind of weird. It was weird. very weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, Mac persuades the commander, uh, Lieutenant Corby and his friend, uh, Fletcher to let him take the, the raft for a solo voyage, uh, in connection with a plan to kill an enemy general at a nearby base. Uh, Mac distracts the general's uh, guards by shooting them, uh, shooting at them while on the raft and is wounded. So I do kind of like, I did kind of like the, the, uh, the enemies here. Like, I like the, like the guy that's just sitting there, like the, the, the fucking uh, general or whatever, like offers that one guy like a drink. And then we proceed to see him take like eight shots to the dome over the course of time of like what I would imagine is like moonshine or something. Yeah. Oh like yes. Yeah. Turpentine. Uh, which by the way, turpentine, you see lighthouse yet? No, not yet. My dude. I gotta uh, see it. I gotta. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Mac distracts the general's guards by shooting at them while on the raft and is wounded. Uh, while this is happening, Fletcher uh, and Corby uh, successfully infiltrate the base and the enemy general is killed. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but there was like one shot in this moment uh, during an action sequence that I thought was very good. Um, But 
I can't find it. Uh, after killing the general, they use an enemy plane to escape to their home base. Uh, after landing, they talk and eat with their own general uh, and return to the river to await Mac. Uh, any comments on like all of this action at the end? By the way, we're kind of like breezing through it. Nah, not with. not not really. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, when he he like shoots those two guys uh through the window or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that one guy like spins out of his chair. Do you know what I mean? Like the right. general, I believe, yeah. like spins after he gets shot. He like spins. It's like a cool move. Oh yeah, and and, it, and like I I again I it goes without saying it. It all looks incredible. Like it all looks yeah. very good. I, I actually like the staging of most of these set pieces and like the staging of this action scene. Um, but yeah, no, 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 no further comment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not having fun watching it. I am just enjoying it in like theory. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is very much. Uh, yes, we were talking about this beforehand, but I, I don't think either of us would have watched this whole movie if we weren't. Uh, discussing it on a podcast, uh, or at least I, I don't think I would have, but uh, <laughs> after landing, uh, yes, they talk to their own general, uh, return to the to await Mac at the river, sitting there, they philosophize about war and how no man is made for it before finding the raft floating downriver with Mac's dead-ass body and a delirious Sydney. Um, and that's the film. That is uh, Fear and Desire. Yes. Uh, it's incredibly, yeah. again, amazing looking like sort of end shot. Like all that mist and that creepy raft sort of floating into into frame. Like yeah. especially that scene when you see Sydney in the water like at a distance as the raft is floating towards him. And you know Max about to die, and he's like, "Sure, Sid, you could get on the raft too." <laughs> and then, and then he does. It's it, it, it all looks very creepy, very weird. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's the yeah. very first film by Stanley Kubrick. Very first narrative. Yes. Um, and the, yeah, and the final shot is like the opening shot, which I was mm-hmm. relieved to go back to that. Ah, um, the woods. <laughs> the woods. Um, Jeremy, what'd you think of this movie? You know, I liked it not at all, really. I didn't <laughs> enjoy it, but hey, you know, it was like educationally very fun to watch. Like, it was cool. It was, and it's cool that they have it on YouTube. And I feel like it works in this like weird complete package with that interview. And honestly, I'm so excited to do this show that I don't care that this we it starts off on a crazy (laughs) bizarre shitty foot because honestly like if we're gonna do those lynch short films first those aren't very i don't like those very much either so uh we're in for we're in for a couple of rough ones before we get to the good good ones but i think you can see some early kubrick tricks in this Uh, of course he's not working with the full 16 by 9 aspect ratio he's working with a, a slimmer um lens which it would be like his four by nine I think that uh, some of the performances I really like, like I really do like Sydney's performance. Like, uh, and I do, and I do think the premise is, is very interesting and dark, but yeah, at the end of the day, 
it's 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 not really saying anything that a high schooler couldn't come up with when asked directly yeah. like how do you feel about the war in vietnam <laughs> right. uh or yeah. Cor- i guess the korean war um yeah at the end of the day it's just not really doing anything uh, you know cool it's just sort of i don't know it's boring it's just sort of boring <laughs> yeah like, yeah uh but the old, the good news is it's only an hour long so <laughs> yeah yeah what did you how did you feel you know i i i uh thought it was um i mean we watched it and i it was fun to talk about actually like i was like excited to talk to you about this uh immediately after watching it um but yeah i would say like i would only recommend this to someone who is like i am a completist and should i and i've seen every other kubrick movie should i watch fear and desire and i would say yes uh watch as much of it as you can but if you're like if uh, someone who like really really likes kubrick i think probably should watch some of this just to like I don't know. It's it's like really interesting because I've I, I've always found like uh, like the first film or like the first album from a band is always like really uh, fascinating. It's fascinating to see like how an artist transforms, and this yeah. is like a huge fucking transformation from this. Even from this to like fucking uh, I don't know Lolita or something. I never saw saw Lolita. I know <laughs> I, I know it's good, but <laughs> um, right. You know, uh, I actually I think his next one's supposed to be pretty good. Uh, I forget what that's called, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 not a good movie, but it was like sort of fun to watch, uh, just in terms of like I said at the top, like a student film <laughs> is set like made seventy years ago. It's like very interesting. You can just tell, um, you can tell like. The location seems, uh, like, there are shots of it where some of it seems like it was filmed in, like, it could have been filmed in, like, a backyard or something. You know what I mean? Where it's just, like... Yeah, yeah it's very, very student film vibes. Yes. It's, it's, it's got huge student film vibes. Um, which, you know, I again, kind of charming. Like, it, 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 there, I, I think this film has value but it is to such a specific person. Like I would not recommend this to most of the people listening to the show. Probably, you know, I mean, I don't know, like, like anyone in my life, I don't even know really, Eric, it'd be like, you are the only one I'd recommend it to. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like hard to find people who like, is, is a good cross section of like Stanley Kubrick fan, <laughs> uh, willing to watch something bad just cause they made it. But also as a historical piece, it shows a lot of like where, Kubrick came from and a lot of where mm-hmm. his sensibility ends up going like you know you mentioned how there's no character development in this film dude is kind of like none in most of his films like he never really grows in that direction you know like I think what he what he's more interested in is concepts it's always <laughs> concepts and the premises and those yeah. get more and more elaborate more and more fun as his career uh, as his career goes but it did it did allow him to make 1955's Killer's Kiss, which is his follow-up, mm. which is which is kind of cool, and I'm excited to do it because I've never seen this film, Killer's Kiss, uh, but it is uh, written by Stanley Kubrick, which is very rare. Most ah. of his uh, films are not written by him. Um, they're like usually like 
written by somebody else with heavily influenced by Kubrick. It's also a very short film. And I've heard this film is quite a bit better and it's about a boxer. So you almost imagine it's Mm. sort of like the narrative companion to his documentary. Yes. Um, yes. And I'm excited. Uh, I will be, uh, reading cause I know a lot of Kubrick stuff. Uh, a, a lot of Kubrick films are like loosely based on, uh, written works of, uh, fiction of some kind. Uh, and I will be reading as many of those as I can. Uh, I did, uh, procure, uh, and this will probably put me on a list of some kind. I did procure <laughs> a copy of Lolita, um, very cool. For, purposes of uh comparing the book to the film i will be doing that with the clockwork orange i am not a pervert um i just want (laughs) to throw that out there now i actually feel like uh it like ashamed that i even uh own a copy of this thing Uh, of uh, the book or the film of the book of the book yeah well i mean it's uh nobakov right so the the book is a great piece of world literature i I have never read it myself, but from what I understand, I mean, it has very public defenders to this day. Like, I don't think reading or uh, <laughs> something about a pedophile or like writing something about a pedophile, even if the ob- uh, objective is to make you sympathize with the pedophile, I don't know if that's like the worst thing in the world. But uh, listeners, uh, write in and tell us. <laughs> yeah. Do you like Imp- pedophile art or no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hashtag I like pedophiles uh, <laughs> is our official show hashtag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Jeremy, uh, next week we will be talking Eraserhead. Yes. We're diving right into the fucking weirdness with uh, David Lynch. Um, very excited, so uh, get ready for that. Uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Tweet at us, at ChuckyRules420. Never going to change that handle. Uh, Jeremy, do you have any uh, plugs or anything? Nah, just keep listening to this. Keep listening to Video Games, a comedy show. Uh, you know, uh, follow us on Twitter at ChuckyRules420. Follow me on Twitter at Ocarina of Crime. And, you know, sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. At the $5 level, which is basically nothing, you get all of our sweet, sweet, delicious bonus content, which we come at you weekly, which is a big commitment. Like, you know, some Patreons... They only update every month. We do it yes. every week. <laughs> yes. Minus last and week, which we didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'll happen once in a while. It's uh it's uh, uh uh you gotta you gotta take a break once in a while, Jeremy. When you're doing the hard work of watching a Tales from the Crypt episode and talking <laughs> about it, uh, you just need some time. Uh I was about to say something. Oh, yes. We also have a tier that uh, we have a tier where you can tell us, you can make us do an episode on whatever you want. Um, yes. We will take a break from what we're doing yes. to do your episode. Not even limited to TV and film. Just tell <laughs> us to do an episode on anything, really. I don't, I don't yeah. give a shit. If you're paying us. Uh, and we also have a, a t- another tier uh, uh, where you can be an executive producer of our show and come on an episode if you'd like. Um, so all that stuff at patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Uh, and Jeremy, now for the debut of our uh, our new sign-off line. Norma, I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs>